What's up, you guys? I'm Andrea. And I'm Haley. And you're listening to Inhuman, a true crime podcast. Welcome back, everybody. So, I don't know about y'all, but I'm just sick of hearing about D'Angelo at this point, <laughs> and I am ready to have this case done with. So, we are finishing up today with part three. I was able to squeeze it all into three parts, which honestly, I probably could have made it longer, but three parts it is. <laughs> I feel like three parts is a good amount. Yeah, I think so. So, we left off in part two with how D'Angelo finally got caught for his crimes and today we're going to examine his dramatic arrest dramatic trial and the aftermath of the Golden State Killer all right so if you guys remember in part two um, police with the help of genealogist Barbara Ray Ventner Michelle McNamara and the website GEDmatch they were all able to finally link DNA from a rape kit performed on rape and murder victim Charlene Smith to D'Angelo. So crazy, again, I know. just how the, the DNA works. I know. And wait till you hear this next part, because I did not know this, and I like learned this in the last part of my research, but thanks to Klaus Peter Smith, who decided to perform a duplicate rape kit on Charlene, which is a very rare practice even to this day. Oh my god. This was the key to preserving the evidence they needed to connect D'Angelo to this case. Wow. Because evidently, um, according to an interview with Paul Holes, a lot of the police departments in different counties were not really on board with this method to catching him. And okay. so only one uh, police department and I believe it was Ventura does that sound right mm-hmm. Ventura? yeah okay Ventura County wh- was the only one that gave them the DNA which was this wow okay that's crazy. Isn't that crazy I know and then also um, since this case Jed Match has now restricted law enforcement's access to more than 1 million user users genetic profiles Wow. So like we were talking about in the last episode, people probably complained about their privacy being violated, which again, I get that your privacy might be violated. And maybe at the time when like Jed Match first started doing this, maybe Mm -hmm. there wasn't anything in like the, you know, terms and conditions that would point to like that something like this could happen. So I get that. But nowadays... I'm sure it's in there, and if you're oh, submitting yeah. it, then you're choosing to to make it public. Yeah. So, but yeah. wow, that's crazy. I know it's it's surprising. It's kind of sad, but I feel like uh, there's probably other sites that will allow police to still use it. So I don't yeah. feel like it's completely like you know a wall that has yeah. been put up. But it do- it does kind of suck because like they were huge in helping this case get broken and solved so interestingly i've always felt like 
if like if somebody in my family did something like this, I'd want them to be caught. And I was yes. talking about it with my husband, Robert, and he had a different view where he was like, well, I'd want to protect them. And I don't think he was thinking about it like full in depth, like if your family member murdered somebody. Yeah. But still, it was like interesting. Somebody who's like me always like doing true crime and reading about true crime. And then my husband, who knows like nothing about true crime and isn't invested in these stories had very different perspectives and i just thought that was interesting i can understand that i definitely think that it's probably a close to like a 50 50 opinion when it comes to that because like you said people want to protect their privacy so yeah it's interesting i can respect that but i also am like if i had someone in my family who raped and murdered this many people or anybody for that matter i think i would want them to be brought to justice but that's just me (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're huge believers of therapy here on Inhuman. Life is tough, and sometimes you need extra help to cope. That's why we love BetterHelp. BetterHelp will pair you with the best therapist for you, and the best part is BetterHelp is all online, so you don't even have to leave your house, which for a busy mom like me and a busy dog (laughs) mom and podcasters like we are is perfect. (laughs) Yeah. And if you've ever heard me talk about therapy, you know that I love it. When I was in college, I began really struggling with anxiety and depression. And while I had been dealing with that for a long time, I hit a point where I needed some help learning some positive coping skills and seeing a therapist really changed my life. I know it sounds cliche, but it helped me realize that so much of what was burdening me was because of my anxiety and my OCD and was not my fault. Therapy isn't just for someone who's experienced a major trauma in their life, and I truly think everyone can benefit from therapy. My therapist has taught me how to set boundaries and learn how to manage my anxiety so it doesn't run my life. If you're thinking of trying therapy, BetterHelp is a great option because as Andrea mentioned, it's entirely online and that makes it convenient and flexible to fit your schedule. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Inhuman today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Inhuman. All right. So now we know investigators had finally caught their guy, but they had to proceed with caution. They could not risk tipping off D'Angelo and having him flee or potentially harm himself or, you know, end his life or anything like that. Right. So Paul Holes, who had been investigating this case for years, we talked about him in part two. um, He actually visited D'Angelo's home in Citrus Heights, California, where he was living with his daughter and granddaughter in March of 2018. Okay. Again, he knew... He could not risk tipping D'Angelo off, so he watched patiently and waited. And what's so crazy about this is he went down there the day before he was scheduled to retire as an investigator. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that wild? Like, he was like, this is my last hurrah. Like, I got to get this son of a bitch. Like, that's what he spent his last night doing. It's so crazy. That's insane. Yeah. So they surveilled D'Angelo during this time. They witnessed him riding his motorcycle at high speeds on the highway. His neighbors testified that D'Angelo was physically fit. They often saw him riding his bike 
and his stationary bike in his bedroom, which I'm like, I hope that you could just see in there and y'all weren't peeping because that's just weird. <laughs> yeah. But according to their neighbors, I guess you could see inside his bedroom. Okay. And it was hard for police to believe that this man was in his 70s. And remember this, keep this in your back pocket for later because it does come back in an interesting way. Okay. On April 18th, investigators followed D'Angelo to a Hobby Lobby store, and there they swabbed the door handle of his car while he was inside. The DNA they gathered nearly matched the DNA left at Lyman and Charlene's crime scene from 1980 perfectly. D'Angelo had 20 out of the 21 DNA markers that matched. Oh, my god! According gosh. to Paul Holes. Yeah. Five days later... Detectives then gathered a tissue from D'Angelo's trash bin, which, if you guys didn't know, trash bins on the road are considered considered public property, so they can yeah. legally obtain evidence from there. And that's what so, happened in the Idaho case with Brian mm-hmm. Koberger. Once, yep. it's, once you discard it, it's trash Free and it's game. public property. Yep. And the DNA from the tissue ended up being a perfect match. Heck Yeah. The following day, on April 24th, 2018, 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo was taken into custody by the Sacramento police. During his interrogation, D'Angelo made a half-assed confession claiming another personality in him named Jerry had forced him to commit these crimes that he had committed for over a decade. He told police, I know, I was like, what? I had never heard this. Like, are you joking? But this is very common for a lot of serial killers or just, you know, people that commit these horrible serial crimes. They want to blame it on some other alternate Yeah, and it's sad because, like, that actually, like, people actually suffer with that that disorder. And Mm -hmm. I feel like they're just, like, using it to try to, well, they are just using it to try to get out of doing something or to try to get out of responsibility. Right. And it just kind of like, I can't think of the word, but it, it like downgrades the, the fe- mental the, health yeah, issue. Exactly. Yeah, it does. It does. They it's know what they're doing. Yeah. So he told police quote, I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me, he went with me. It was in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I have to pay the price. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm like, you were able to push him out after? Mm-hmm. Like, the, it doesn't really work like that if you're actually suffering with, with mm, that. No. Hmm. You can't just turn it on and off. No. I mean, you can if you're making it up, I guess. Yeah. <sighs> On June 29th, 2020, Joseph James D'Angelo pled guilty to 26 charges, 13 counts of first-degree murder, and 13 counts of kidnapping. Wow. Unfortunately, due to the undeniably ridiculous statute of limitations mm-hmm. for many of for the many rapes he was accused of, that statute of limitations had expired. And you all know how I feel because I ranted about it last episode. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Ugh. Prosecutors from nearly a dozen counties in California detailed D'Angelo's most brutal and violent crimes inside the university ballroom on the Sacramento State University campus, which acted as a courtroom for D'Angelo's trial. Okay. 
Each time the judge asked D'Angelo his plea, he replied, guilty. D'Angelo sat in a wheelchair, clad in an orange jumpsuit and a face shield, and listened to 45 different victim impact statements over a three-day period, including those whose family members had been murdered by him. Afterwards, he frailly rose and told the court, quote, I have listened to all of your statements, each one of them, and I am truly sorry to everyone I have hurt. Thank you, Your Honor. That just makes me so mad. I know. Initially, prosecutors were seeking the death penalty, but D'Angelo struck up a deal stating if he pled guilty to these crimes, they'd take the death penalty off the table, which, of Of course. course, he gladly obliged. Yeah. And that's what I've said, too, that I'm worried that Brian Koberger might... Not worried necessarily, but I feel yeah. like if he does end up pleading guilty, it'll be because of the For death penalty and to get yeah. that off the table. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're definitely going to seek the death penalty on that guy, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, it's, I, I feel like I keep, like, bringing him up, but it's just, <laughs> like, it's a top of mind Parallel. case. Yeah. Yeah. True. On October, or excuse me, on August 21st, 2021... Judge Michael G. Bowman sentenced D'Angelo to 11 consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. All right. He then addressed D'Angelo saying he would spend the rest of his life and ultimately meet his death behind the walls of a state penitentiary. He continued saying, quote, the defendant, the defendant deserves no mercy. A person who commits monstrous acts They need to be locked away where they can never harm another innocent person. And in response, the courtroom erupted in applause. (laughs) D'Angelo now resides in the Cochrane State Prison in their protective housing unit. Okay. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. After D'Angelo's arrest and trial, some of his family spoke out in disbelief that the man they had known their whole lives could be capable of such heinous acts. In one interview, a niece of D'Angelo's recalled how she thought of this man as a loving father figure and has her quote-unquote hero who would take her camping and fishing. She said, quote, I personally feel that someone else is inside him who I do not know. I mean, I feel like that can be true without her necessarily meaning like you know, dissociative identity mm-hmm. disorder where it's like a different identity, but you're right. just like, he's somebody that I never knew. Yeah. I mean, of course he didn't show that side to the people he actually, if he's capable of loving and caring yeah. that he loved and cared about. So D'Angelo's estranged wife, Sharon also spoke out and said, quote, my thoughts and prayers are for the victims and their families. The press has relentlessly pursued interviews with me. I will not be giving any interviews for the foreseeable future. I ask the press to please respect my privacy and that of my children. After the trial, Sharon continues to decline any interviews with the media to try and protect her family from scrutiny, which, if you recall in part one, they have received, specifically her, has received a lot of scrutiny as to how she could possibly have not known that he did all these things but that happens a lot that happens in most cases people have a double life i mean look at um 
BTK. I mean, mm-hmm. he had a whole ass like wife, family, and kid. Yeah. yeah, and he did all that stuff, and you know, they didn't know. Yeah, and Sharon does not want the media involved in their lives. I mean, makes sense. Yeah, and she deserves that. Like to live with that for the rest of her life is that's just not fair. Yeah. Today, though, Sharon and her daughters are thriving. I cannot imagine what they are going through finding out that their father and husband is and was such a disgusting monster but alas they persevered according to reports one of d'angelo's daughters is a doctor one is a phd candidate at a university and the other is a graduate teaching assistant wow good for them i know i'm like look at these badass bitches like they're like i don't care i can do anything i want never mind my father's whoever you know yeah Good for them. Yeah. Sharon has her own law firm, which, if you remember, she went to law school. Mm -hmm. And they specialize in family, divorce, and real estate law. Sharon also co-founded the National Coalition Against Surrogacy Organization, which advocates for the rights of surrogate mothers. Wow. They provide legal and emotional support to women who become surrogates. Which is so, like, crazy because I read, like, the whole, um, like, about section of the website and it's kind of weird to me in a way because, like, you know, when you, I guess when you sign on to be a surrogate, like, you kind of are under the understanding that you're not going to be in this child's life or if you are, like, the terms are Are, in the agreement. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, I guess, you know, obviously, there's a spider on my wall. Hold on up. Oh, Hold no. Hold on a second. <laughs> Pause, I please. I do. Okay, he's, he can just stay there. He's small. I don't want to <laughs> kill him. I'm trying not to kill spiders. I have one of those, like, grabber things that just, like, opens up, and then you can just, like, grab a bug and then, like, put it outside. That's a thing? I didn't know that it's was amazing. a thing. It's amazing. I need I'll to order you, one of those. I'll send you a link for it. Not to, yes, send me a link, because I'm really trying not to kill the spiders. It's yeah. just a little tiny baby, though. Make sure it's not like a black widow or anything. Okay. Yeah, and make sure it's not a pregnant mom like the last time you had spiders. Oh, no, 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 no. I know. <laughs> that was very <laughs> traumatic. I still haven't recovered from that. Oh. Um, but, yeah, I guess like some, you know, they change their mind. And I understand that, you know, carrying a baby for nine months and then realizing that you have to give it away. So it's kind of yeah. cool in a way that they, you know, help mothers do or, Work you know, surrogate that. mothers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So Patton Oswalt, who was the is the husband of Michelle McNamara, mm-hmm. um, sh- he actually had to stand up for Michelle after her death because investigators were not giving her the credit that she was due. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. I mean, that honestly doesn't surprise me because they're like, we solved it. And it's like, you guys wouldn't have solved it if it wasn't for all the work that she put in. Yeah, she put in a ton of work. And so did like her... Um, like Paul Hayes who helped her Mm -hmm. and like there's so many people who helped the you know pave the way for this case to get solved yeah Um, but he did speak out after the trial and he tweeted quote if they've really caught the golden state killer I hope I get to visit him not to gloat or gawk but to ask him the questions that Michelle wanted answered oh and in her book I'll be gone in the dark. She actually, at the end of it, um, 
wrote a letter to the Golden State Killer. Oh, wow. And I'm going to read that for you guys right now because I thought there are no better way to end this episode than by sharing this excerpt with you all. Okay. And it's a long one. And get your tissues ready. Uh-oh. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So it's a big quote. And I, the way she writes is just, I just can't. Okay. <laughs> You were your approach, the thump against the fence, a temperature dip from a jimmied open patio door, the odor of aftershave permeating a bedroom at 3 a.m., a blade at the base of the neck. Don't move or I'll kill you. Their hardwired threat detection systems flickered meekly through the sledgehammer of sleep. No one had time to sit up. Awakening meant understanding they were under siege. Phone lines had been cut. Bullets emptied from guns, ligatures prepared and laid out. You force action from the periphery, a blur of mask and strange gulping breaths. Your familiarity freaked them. Your hands flew to hard to find light switches. You knew names, numbers of kids, hangouts. Your pre planning gave you a crucial advantage. Because when your victims awoke to the blinding flashlight and clenched teeth threats, you were always a stranger to them, but they never were to you. Hearts drummed, mouths dried. Your physicality remained unfathomable. You were a hard-soled shoe felt fleetingly. A penis slathered in baby lotion thrust into a pair of bound hands. Do it good. No one saw your face. No one felt your full body weight. Blindfolded, the victims relied on smell and hearing. Floral talcum powder, hint of cinnamon, chimes on a curtain rod, zipper opening on a duffel bag, coins falling to the floor, a whimper, a sob, oh mom, a glimpse of royal blue, brushed leather tennis shoes, the barking of dogs fading away in a westerly direction. You were what you left behind. A four-inch vertical cut in the window screen at the ranch house on Montclair in San Ramon. A green-handled hatchet on the hedges. A piece of cord hanging from a birch tree. Foam on an empty Schlitz malt liquor bottle in the backyard. Smears of unidentifiable blue paint. Frame four of Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department, photo roll three, of the spot where they believe you came over the fence. A girl's purpled right hand, which was numb for hours. The outline of a crowbar in dust. Eight crushed skulls. You were a voyeur, a patient recorder of habits and routines. The first night, a husband working dispatch switched to the graveyard shift. You pounced. There were four to seven day old herringbone shoe impressions beneath the bathroom window at the scene on the 300th, excuse me, block of Thornwood, Sacramento. Officers noted that standing there, you could stare into the victim's bedroom. Fuck me like your old man, you hissed, like you knew how that was done. You put high heels on one girl, something she did in bed with her boyfriend. 
You stole bikini Polaroids as keepsakes. You stalked around with your needling flashlight and clipped repetitive phrases, both director and star of the movie unspooling in your head. Almost every victim describes the same scene, a time they could sense you return after a period of distracted ransacking in another part of the house. No words, no movement, but they knew you were standing there. Could imagine a lifeless gaze coming from the two holes in your ski mask. One, vic- one victim felt you staring at the scar on her back. After a long while of hearing nothing, she thought, he's gone. She exhaled. Just as the knife tip came down and began tracing the end of her scar. Fantasy adrenalized you. Your imagination compensated for failed reality. Your inadequacy- inadequacies reeked. One victim experimented with reverse psychology and whispered, You're good. You abruptly got off her amazed. Your tough guy bravado smelled like a bluff. There was a shakiness in your clenched teeth whisper, an occasional stutter detected. Another victim described to police how you'd briefly grabbed her left breast like it was a doorknob. Oh, isn't this good, you asked one girl as you raped her and held a knife to her throat until she agreed. Your fantasies ran deep, but they never tripped you up. Every investigation into an at-large violent offender is a foot trace. You always maintained the lead. You were savvy. You knew to park just outside the standard police perimeter between two houses or on a vacant lot to avoid suspicion. You punched small holes in the glass panes, used a tool to nudge wooden latches and open windows while your victims remained asleep. You turned off the AC so you could hear if someone was coming. You left side gates open and rearranged patio furniture so you had a straight shot out. Pedaling a 10-speed, you escaped an FBI agent in a car. You scuttled across roofs. In Danville on July 6, 1979, a tracker's dog reacted so strongly to an ivy shrub on Sycamore Hill Court that the tracker believed the scent pool was just moments old. A neighbor witnessed you escape the scene of one attack. You exited the house the way you entered, without pants. Helicopters, roadblocks, citizen patrols taking down plate numbers, hypnotists, psychics, hundreds of white males chewing on gauze, nothing. You were a scent and a shoe impression. Bloodhounds and detectives tracked both. They led away. They led nowhere. They led into the dark. For a long time, you have the advantage. Your gait is propulsive. In your wake are the police investigators. The worst episode in a person's life it was recorded in sloppy cursive by an often rushed and sleepy officer. Misspellings abound. Pubic hair texture described by a doodle in the margin. Investigators follow leads using slowly dialed rotary phones. When no one is home, the phone just continues to ring. If they want to look up an old record, they did they dig through stacks of paper by hand. The clattering teletype machine punches messy holes in paper tape. Viable suspects are eliminated based on their mother's alibis. Eventually the case report is put in a file box put in a file, a box, and then a room. The door is shut, yellowing of paper fading of memory commence. The race is yours to win. You're home free. You can feel it. 
The victims recede from view. Their rhythm is off. Their confidence drain. They're laden with phobias and made tentative by memory. Divorce and drug, divorce and drugs beset them. Statute of limitations expire. Evidence kit kit evidence kits are tossed for lack of room. What happened to them is buried, bright and unmoving, a coin at the bottom of a pool. They do their best to carry on, and so do you. But the game has lost its edge. The script is repetitive and requires higher stakes. You begin at windowsills, then cross inside. The fear response stirred you, but three years in, grimaces and pleading will no longer suffice. You yield to your darker impulses. Your murder victims are stunners all. Some have complicated love lives. To you, I'm certain they are whores. It was a different set of rules. You knew you had at least 15 minutes to flee a neighborhood when your crimes were left bound and alive in their homes. But when you walk out of Lyman and Charlene Smith's in Ventura on March 13, 1980, you feel no need to rush. There's, their bodies won't be found for three days. Fireplace log, crowbar, wrench. You kill your victims with objects picked up at their homes. Unusual, maybe, but then it's always been your habit to be fleet of foot and unencumbered by very little but rage. And then, after May 4th, 1986, you disappear. Some think you died or went to prison. Not me. I think you bailed when the world began to change. It's true. Age must have slowed you. The testosterone, once a gush, was now a trickle. But the truth is, memories fade, paper decays, but technology improves. You cut out when you looked over your shoulder and saw your opponents gaining on you. The race was yours to win. You were the observer in power, never observed. An initial setback came on September 10, 1984, in a lab at Leicester University, when Genesis Alec Jeffries developed the first DNA profile. Another came in 1989 when Tim Berners-Lee wrote a proposal for the World Wide Web. People who weren't even aware of you or your crimes began devising algorithms that could help find you. In 1998, Larry Page and Sergey Brin incorporated their company, Google. Boxes with your police reports were hauled out, scanned, digitized, and shared. The world hummed with connectivity and speed smartphones, optical character recognition technology, customizable interactive maps, familial DNA. I've seen photos of the waffle stomper boot impressions you left in the dirt beneath a teenage girl's bedroom in July on July 17, 1976 in Carmichael, a crude relic from a time when voyeurs had no choice but to physically plant themselves in front of windows. You excelled at the stealth sidle, but your heyday prowess has no value anymore. Your skill set has been phased out. The tables have turned. Virtual windows are opening all around you. You, the master watcher, are an aging, lumbering target in their crosshairs. A ski mask won't help you now. One victim's phone rang 24 years after her rape. You want to play, a man whispered. It was you. She was certain. 
You play nostalgic, like an arthritic former football star running game tape on a VCR. Remember when we played? I imagine you dialing her number alone in a small dark room, sitting on the edge of your twin bed, the only weapon left in your arsenal firing up a memory, the ability to trigger terror with your voice. One day soon, you'll hear a car pull up to your curb, an engine cut out. You'll hear footsteps coming up your front walk, like they did for Edward Wayne Edwards, 29 years after he killed Timothy Hack and Kelly Drew in Sullivan, Wisconsin. Like they did for Kenneth Lee Hicks, 30 years after he killed Lori Billingsley in Aloha, Oregon. The doorbell rings. No side gates are left open. You're long past leaping over a fence. Take one of your hyper-gulping breaths. Clench your teeth. Inch timidly toward the insistent bell. This is how it ends for you. You'll be... I'm going to cry. <laughs> You'll I be know. silent forever, and I'll be gone in the dark. You threatened a victim once. Open the door. Show us your face. Walk into the light. Holy shit. I, Isn't that powerful? Yeah. I wish you guys could have seen my, like, facial expressions. I know. During that, because I just, like, couldn't... I didn't want to like interrupt the flow of it mm-hmm. and couldn't really formulate words, but I was like, like my mouth was dropping. I was putting my hand over my mouth. I was like, just wow. I the mean, the way she painted the the whole, I mean, the whole investigation. Everything. Yeah, yeah, it was just so like wild. the start of it was so heartbreaking and sad and frustrating, knowing like what he was able to do to all these victims. And then towards the end, when she started calling him out and saying, this is all you have left. And one day you're going to hear the footsteps and they're going to find you. That the gave way me chills. she pinpointed it so perfectly. Yeah. Because, wow. I mean, that's essentially what happened. I mean. Yeah. And for her to through all of it and she worked so long and so hard to get to a point and she didn't know how it was going to turn out but for her to be able to come up with that in her mind and be so confident like I think she manifested that happening and she was like wow I know and it's such a tragedy that she didn't get to see him finally brought to justice yeah but I think she she knows she knows oh yeah she definitely knows wow okay I have no more words I know it's like But I have more. I do have more that I want to talk about because in true Andrea fashion, after I finished all my research, I came across an interview with Paul Holes and he shared some neat details about this case. Kind of like, you know, his thought process on certain things. Mm, Um, But first, like, he was saying how, because the interviewer was asking him, like, why do you think he stopped? Like, why do you think there was a five-year gap between, you know, the last two victims or the last couple victim and then the last actual victim, Janelle Cruz. So he talked about how Greg Sanchez was a big dude. Like he was 6'3", he was, you know, stacked. And D'Angelo was only about 5'10 or 5'11". And at this point, he would have been in his 40s, I believe, or pushing 40. So he thinks that Greg Sanchez probably gave him a run for his money. Mm. And... That is why his last attack was on a single woman. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes so a lot I was of sense. Like, Whoa, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Wow. And also, he was saying how um, they, I guess, they uncovered, you know, evidence where he had when he would break into these women's homes, he would steal their IDs, and that's why he was able to call them by name because a lot of these women were convinced that their attacker knew them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that would make sense. Right. And then um, after he was fired from the Auburn PD, which if you remember, he got caught shoplifting. Right. um, Paul Holes was able to later, I guess, question the police police chief. And he told Paul Holes that after he let him go from the Auburn PD, that he threatened to kill him. Oh, my god! And gosh. then a few nights later, his daughter noticed a man standing <gasps> in her, her window. And he was holding a flashlight in her face. So she was unable to see him or identify him. Wow. And okay. the police chief went outside and he found shoe prints around the perimeter of his home. And that was right in line with the evidence from the East Area Rapist cases. Right. But they could not prove that it was D'Angelo. But he said he always felt in his gut that it was him. Oh, yeah. I definitely feel. Isn't that crazy? That's just too big of a coincidence for it not to be. Yeah. And wow. Like, that's terrifying. I know. I was like, I would have moved after that. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's just, with everything else that was going on, like terrifying yeah but yeah i just oh wanted to gosh. include that before we close this case <laughs> um because i thought it was really interesting and um just the dedication that paul holes had for this case is yeah. like remarkable i mean he obviously it was his job to some extent but he kind of just took it upon himself to investigate it and, yeah like he and went he above was, and beyond exactly and he was definitely a big part of this case being solved as well so yeah shout out to paul holes Wow. Yeah. That is so, wild. I know. It is. And, I mean, I'm so glad that he was obviously brought to justice. I do hate that, you know, it, it took so long. But he is still alive. So yeah. he may spend, like, another 20 years in prison, yeah. maybe. Um, which is hilarious because also in that interview, um, Paul Holes was like, you know, we had – we had surveilled D'Angelo and we saw him riding his motorcycle and saw him exercising and doing all these things. And then he comes being wheeled in a wheelchair for the trial. Right. Like trying his last ditch effort to gain some kind of sympathy. Yeah. And it's like you, first of all, you killed, murdered, brutally murdered 13 people at least. Yeah. And never mind the just absolutely insane amount of number of people that you raped, of women yeah. that you raped, that couldn't even, that part of it couldn't even be brought to justice because of the statute of limitations. Yeah. But and you can't even walk into the damn play courtroom. on someone's sympathy. Like, get the fuck out of here, dude. Yeah. And he does look, I mean, he does look pathetic. I sent you that picture and he looks yeah. so frail and so just like somebody's like, old ass grandpa that is on his deathbed i mean he really yeah. looked like that and to know that that was all a facade like 
Yeah, one hundred percent pissed me off to see that and find and that, that just out. proves how like smart and conniving he was. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. he had to be to pull off all of this without getting caught and like planned so much of it out mm-hmm. clearly and stalked right. victims and things like that. And that just proves that he really was that like conniving. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, probably very smart person. And he continued that after his arrest. And right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I know. It's so crazy. It is. So hopefully he'll spend a lot of time in prison. Um, yeah. Before he and if he's in the protection the unit, I obviously don't know a lot about like actual prisons, but in prison prison shows, usually <laughs> the protection unit is like isolated and mm-hmm. like you're only talking to like so many people and things like that. So hopefully he's yeah. as miserable as you can possibly be. I mean, all of jail would probably be miserable, but hopefully he's like extra miserable because of where he is. I don't know, man. I've heard some some things about jails that doesn't sound. It doesn't sound. I mean, it sucks that you can't leave and like you're stuck in there for the you know remainder of your life or however long your sentence is. But they get like warm meals, they get That's TV, true. they get like outside time. So it doesn't sound like too terrible. But yeah, yeah. I hope he's hope he's suffering. Cause... I hope he's miserable. I hope the jail he's in is terrible and the guards are mean cold. and he's cold and his food <laughs> tastes like nothing. Cold and showers. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. So, yep, that is everything. I'm sure there's so many more details of this case, though. Like, you could research it for days and days and days and days and days. Yeah, and still not I definitely want to read Michelle's book. Yes, I'm going to link her book. Um, I'm also going to link the video interview with Paul Holes that um, I watched after I did all my research. Because it is very okay. informative and very interesting, in my opinion. Um but yeah, that's all I that's all I got for y'all today, and we're finally gonna close this this case, and no more talking about D'Angelo, hopefully for a long time. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you guys for hanging out with us today, and we will be with you on Monday with a brand new case. And until then, keep it human. Bye.